The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Syndicate Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good morning to you, Kobus. Morning. Kobus, over the past few weeks, we've had a discussion going on both in on the podcast, but also I've been uh, had the pleasure of hosting a webinar with our friends at the Africa-China Reporting Project talking about misinformation and the info pandemic that's going on right now in Africa related to COVID-19 information. It's been a really big problem that lots of fake news, misleading news, just news that lacks context has been promulgated throughout the social media ecosystem. It's also interesting because it comes at a time when fake news is a framing that has been popularized by U.S. President Donald Trump and is now part of the everyday vernacular, but also something that we become very skeptical about in terms of the quality of the information we get because of what happened in the 2016 election and everything that we know about what the Russians did. But we've never really looked at Chinese and Russian information, misinformation, fake news, whatever you want to call it, in an African context. And that today is going to be something very interesting that we'll explore. Yes, we, we you know, kind of in, in the past, we've talked a lot about the ways that, that China kind of, you know, shapes its messaging in Africa through frequently through state owned media channels. So one would see something like like the tabloid Global Times pushing very strident, very kind of nationalist um, conspiracy theories about about, you know, US attacks on China, or US kind of plots against China, and, and kind of pushing those stories in, in um, African media. Um, but I you know, kind of, and frequently in uh, what we see now from people like the Secretary Pompeo is, um, you know, the conflation of the two, talking about Chinese and Russian misinformation in Africa. And there certainly is a lot of Chinese in information and a lot of Russian information flowing into Africa, but the two are frequently quite different. And then there's another part of this story, which we're not going to delve into today, but something that we covered in our newsletter uh, is about the role of U.S. information or misinformation, talking about Chinese debt trap diplomacy. And this is all coming out of state-run media. Again, a lot of back and forth between the U.S. and Chinese with Africa caught in the middle. But let's focus today on China and Russia in particular. And for that, we've got two excellent guests who are really focusing on these issues. Tavinka Kachur is a researcher at the Center for Complex Systems in Transitions at Stellenbosch University in Cape Town. And John LaRue is a research associate with the Digital Forensics Research Lab, which is a department within the Atlantic Council think tank in Washington. He joins us also from Cape Town. Tavinka and John Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you for the invitation. It's great to have you on. This is an area that, again, we haven't really talked much about on the show. At the same time, there's not a lot of exploration about Chinese and Russian information strategies in Africa. Let's start with what's going on the, from where you are in your neighborhood in South Africa, and then we'll kind of look broader at the continent. Uh, Zvinka, give us kind of your perspective on the paper that you're starting to put together and the research that you've done into this topic so we can get a lay of the land. Uh, thanks, Eric. Uh, I think the, um, how we get to the disinformation topic, it came from the research on the state capture that um, uh, was happening during uh, Zuma period in uh, South Africa, where a number of uh, institutions um, uh, 
purposes were uh, laid and uh, changed to benefit a few um, of the proxies to President uh, Zuma. And uh, one of the big issues was nuclear deal when the uh, Russian President Putin has approached uh, uh, Zuma to uh, build nuclear power stations. And by investigation and looking deeper into how that nuclear deal was happening, we came to the idea of um, disinformation. Because even uh, Zuma's period ended, and uh, at the moment South Africa has a different president, uh, Cyril Ramaphosa, the uh, nuclear conversation continues. And uh, certain narratives uh, uh, appeared uh, that are strongly um, linked to promoting nuclear and that are not really... Are true, and that's uh, basically what we looked into uh, with uh, Jean, into how those narratives are promoted, and um, what are the organizations uh, that are promoting those narratives. Jean, you um, you mentioned uh, Jasinka mentioned that that uh, like proxies were used to plant narratives in this in the South African media. How did that actually work, and which kind of narratives were they promoting? This was actually quite interesting. It was um, I first picked up on this um, not from the State Capture Commission, but from uh, research that I was doing while still with uh, News Twenty Four as an investigative journalist. Um, I noticed there was an organisation that kind of just popped up out of nowhere, suddenly becoming very vocal on social media. Um, this was around about the time that South Africa was um, kind of restructuring its uh, integrated resource plan, which is our energy roadmap uh, for the next uh, uh, couple of, of years. I think it's a about five to 15 years ahead that the IRP actually plans um, South Africa's energy needs and the energy mix. And right about the time that this was being rediscussed and the composition of that renegotiated, um, this organization kind of popped up on social media, extremely vocal. Um, they appeared to uh, you know, be well-resourced. They had presentations ready. They had graphics ready. And they kind of quite um, adamant on pushing uh, nuclear as the preferred um, you know, energy generation model for South Africa. Now, this comes off of the back of a extremely controversial nuclear deal, as uh, Zinka mentioned, where there were allegations that the president was involved, there were allegations that ministers were involved, and that there were backroom deals that were trying to push this nuclear deal through at an, an exorbitant cost. Um, the deal was eventually stopped by the Constitutional Court, which found that a lot of the uh, procedures and the checks and the balances for this procurement wasn't followed. This organization you know, came up there. They were extremely vocal in favor of nuclear. But at the same time, they were quite opaque in terms of their management. You couldn't see... Um, who's running the account. You couldn't see who are the directors, who are the, sh the shareholders, if any, um, who are the experts they refer to. And through a little bit of digging, we actually came across this organization and found proxies linking back um, to Russian state-owned energy corporations um, through some of the directors of this NGO um, as it started out. John, very quickly, we've we've heard you guys both say state capture. I think that's an important concept that I'm not entirely clear on. Could you explain what state capture means? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, state capture is in South Africa. That's it's pretty much commonplace. There's a, or at least the term is used <laughs> very commonplace. Um, there's an entire um, commission of inquiry that was set up to investigate this phenomenon, and what it basically entails is the um, abuse of state machinery, whether it's state owned 
corporations or, um, you know, individual ministers in their portfolio positions and where these organizations are being used for um, motives that could benefit certain individuals or certain families or certain um, non-state entities. Um, the biggest example of this, as Trinka mentioned, is the Gupta family that's uh, been accused of sitting behind quite a lot of these captured state organs where um, normal processes, normal contract and tendering processes were railroaded in order to make uh, provision for these families to benefit. Okay, so Kobus, taking into account what both John and Zavinka have said in terms of state capture and the way that the Russians approach the nuclear deal in South Africa, bring us into how the Chinese communicate and if there are similarities and differences in what they've done. Well, I think, you know, kind of, and this is this I'd, I'd like to get Zvinka's take on as well. Um, for, for me, you know, one of the mysteries of, of kind of Russian communication is that, in, in Africa particularly, is is that in some cases, like in, in the South African case, they're clearly promoting, you know, the, the, the interests of Russian parties, you know, kind of be stay, be they kind of state-owned nuclear organizations or in the case of of, um, of Libya, for example, you know, there's, there's a whole raft of Russian um, misinformation pages on Facebook promoting Russian-backed, um, you know, actors in the Libyan civil war. So there you can see a kind of a direct link to Russia. But in other cases in Africa, they frequently, you know, kind of, they, they seem almost like a kind of a wild card, um, you know, the, you know, kind of sowing misinformation to to and and kind of disrupting um, election processes where you don't really see a very clear kind of Russian agenda. I think in the case of China, the agenda is relatively clear. Uh, you know, in in that it's it's kind of promoting a. a, a a vision of China and the world, you know, an idea of China and the world as, as a kind of a South-South development partner and then, um, you know, any kind of like framing any kind of criticism of China as a Western plot. Um, you know, so so in that sense, you know, it, it's, it's interesting, like Russia seems to be kind of more all over the place. You know, Zvinka, am I getting that right? Like, how how do how do you see the role of Russia in in um, in cases where there aren't particularly clear cut Russian interests at, at play? Yeah, I think there are uh, different approaches that uh, Russia is using dep- depending of, on uh, how uh, politically aligned or disaligned is uh, countries um, uh, country uh, to Russia. So if the country is aligned and uh, there is direct political uh, communication with the president and the government, it's uh, one type of communication. Comparing to if the country is misaligned, then um, it's used a different uh, approach. Uh, in during the Soviet Union, in active measures, there was this um, uh, classification of black, great, and white active measures. And white active measure is uh, open uh, communication. So here we are talking about state media like Russia Today, that is openly broadcasting um, uh, around uh, African countries and um, uh, is relatively popular and promoting uh, specific. Uh, pro-Russian, but also anti-Western narratives. There are a few other uh, media communication channels that also openly speak uh, on behalf of uh, Russian value systems and Russian ideas. But um, if the country is not uh, ideologically aligned, then uh, even during Soviet Union uh, 
period and Cold War, it was used more black active measures. And here we talk about proxy organizations, organizations that look African but are promoting specific ideas of um, Russia and also about uh, uh, crit criticism and um, um, changing the perception of opinion leaders who are opposing Russian politics. So those are uh, kind of the different ways of communication that, and that's maybe also what causes perception that um, there is different uh, approaches that um, uh, Russia is um, using. I think there is a global agenda. There is a global agenda of um, uh, UN uh, and um, uh, how different African countries that represent a significant portion of um, countries that are voting in the UN uh, will be um, voting, uh, especially because um, Russia is under Western sanctions and uh, that's why uh, African countries are... Uh, Posing uh, higher value uh, and their perception and uh, their representation in the UN system. Let's talk about some of the different approaches that you mentioned, Zavinka, and we'll f kind of break down some of the Chinese approaches and then see if there again are some parallels with what the Russians are doing. One of the mistakes that I think a lot of people make when they look at the Chinese media engagement, for example, in Africa, is they look at just the, the, the what's above the surface. So they'll see CGTN, the, the TV network that's based out of Kenya, and they'll look at China Daily, even Global Times to some extent, some of their international editions. China Radio International is on a lot of terrestrial broadcasting outlets in many African countries. And so that, they'll say, is that's the main kind of forward-facing part of the propaganda. What people are not seeing is what's under the surface, and that the Chinese, particularly Xinhua, have done these distribution deals with a number of different African media sites. Uh, so Modern Ghana, for example, is one. Daily Nation in Kenya is another. And you'll see this throughout the African internet, where it's basically just the news feed that goes out. And it's much like AP and Reuters. It's just kind of all mixed in there. And so a lot of Chinese narratives will be put through into these big giant news feeds. And sometimes it says Xinhua and sometimes it doesn't. The other way that they're doing it is they have taken a stake in Independent Online, which is uh, the, one of the big South African media companies. And one of the things that we've seen happen there is they will start to take Xinhua articles, change them a little bit, the same way that journalists would do this with AP or Reuters, change the topics a little bit, the subject material, and then put an African journalist's name on it. So it's effectively still a Xinhua article, but at the same time, it is masquerading with uh, an African journalist's name. So it makes it even harder for people to figure out what's what. And then the last part of this is, of course, uh, what we, we use the word state capture, but Kobus, you and I have talked about over, uh, over the years about governing elites and China's relationship with governing elites. And they will make sure that they leverage their relationship with governing elites to ensure that their message points are conveyed. So we saw just a couple months ago in Uganda when uh, one of the Ugandan state-owned newspapers did not properly characterize Taiwan in accordance with the One China policy. And boy, the embassy came down on the paper and they issued a, a retraction and a correction and whatnot. And so that's all guiding the narrative, not necessarily misinformation, but still part of it. John, with all of that in mind, do you see any similarities with what the Russians are doing based on what the Chinese are currently doing in Africa? So just quickly, a comment on that, Eric. Um, the, the things you've mentioned now, we've 
uh, as the DFR lab, we've conducted our own research into the, you know, the COVID related narratives and the COVID related disinformation uh, coming from China since the start of this year. And it was quite interesting um, when you mentioned about these articles being kind of syndicated through from the, you know, CGTN and the, the People's Daily and so on. And one of the, the uh, in incidents that we picked up on was where Chinese disinformation targeting the U.S. as the origin of the virus um, was circulated into publications in New Zealand and Helsinki, for example. And um, I mean, a lot of that that you mentioned just now, we, we've actually seen evidence of that. It's um, part of research we've done that echoes um, a lot of that. In terms of the the, the Russian parallels to that, um, it's not as uh, prevalent or as as um, you know, clear as the as the Chinese examples. You've got you know Russia, the RT uh, publications, you know, syndicating articles from South Africa. You've got uh, these kind of pop up television stations uh, specifically circulating or, or orbiting the BRICS uh, partnership that are cropping up. And um, I mean, a lot of these uh, institutions, even though it might not necessarily be. Um, publishing disinformation or you know fake news, if you want to call it that, um, they are shaping the narrative and they are busy, you know, pushing certain agendas for 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 Russia. Um, Zvinko does have a lot more on Afrique and these television stations. So, uh, Zvinko, if you want to jump in, please feel free. Yes, um, I just wanted to say that um, you know when we uh, talk about Russian um, disinformation, it's also very difficult to attribute uh, some of those things. Uh, for example, during uh, Zuma period in uh, South Africa, there were also uh, state-established news agencies, uh, such as New Age newspaper or ANN TV channel, and those were uh, paid with South African um, taxpayers' money and um, uh, supported. So. Uh, the um, division between uh, corruption inside African countries and the uh, influence, geopolitical influence, is um, not very clear. We can see that the uh, approach used is similar, but uh, it well can be used by South African authorities that were in power, not necessarily only by uh, geopolitical influence, where we can uh, speak uh, more confidently is, for example, uh, when we talk about FRIC, which is um, um, non-governmental organizations established with the support of um, Russia to conduct um, observations during uh, elections. And it was established around 2018. And at the moment, we have uh, uh, enough uh, data to say that that organization is supported uh, uh, from uh, Russia. And the idea of uh, organization was to um, provide uh, information about uh, elections, so to serve as uh, organizations that observe the election and provide the statements uh, about whether elections were free or not, in line with uh, Russian political influences. So this organization did not uh, follow the code of conduct uh, for international election observers. So the duration uh, of the mission uh, didn't have to be long enough to make the conclusion and the number of people that are doing uh, observations also um, wasn't controlled. By, but this organization was used then by uh, Russian state media to promote certain narratives about uh, free elections in Zimbabwe or other countries, uh, similar uh, 
mission was conducted also to South Africa, where it was announced that uh, 300 uh, uh, poll stations were observed, where in practice there were only seven. So you make those statements, uh, creating information where you don't really have the ground for it. You know, one one of the biggest issues, I think, or one, one of the biggest um, differences between China, China and, and Russian approaches is the, the mix of media. Um, so so both of you have mentioned, you know, TV um, and and print. Um, but I was wondering about, about the role of social media. You know, on, on the Chinese side, obviously within China, there are these, you know, million, billion strong um, troll armies. Um, but so far, you know, China has been a, rel- a relative, relatively slow kind of um, adapter of, of Western social media platforms like Twitter. I mean, we, we, we're seeing now that the Chinese ambassadors are starting to become a lot stronger on Twitter than, than they used to be. Um, you know, how, how, is, how is the use of social media different? Or like, like what, what, is the, what is the particular role of social media on the Russian side of this, particularly in Africa? Uh, I think um, um, with uh, confidence we can speak about the report um, that was done by Stanford Internet Observatory, Shelby Grossman, with colleagues, where they explored network of um, era-related uh, web pages uh, and uh, pages supporting that belong to specific political uh, parties and are connected to uh, Russian uh, era organization. And those networks were in the... Central African Republic, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Madagascar, Mozambique, uh, Sudan. So these were Facebook pages uh, that uh, were funded uh, with the support. We also uh, could uh, remember that in March um, this year, there were Russian troll factories um, identified in African countries that were working on um, American uh, elections, promoting uh, specific uh, messages um, um, in uh, America while being uh, residents in um, African countries. Um, also, we have um, a few uh, documents leaked by the CIA Center about um, how um, Russia approaches uh, in disinformation in Africa, and it's strongly connected to uh, the narratives promoted in the U.S., so while there is a specific approach to Africa, uh, it's uh, in the same document where you speak about the strategy to Africa and how the um, black issues could be promoted in the U.S. But John, maybe you can uh, speak even more um, about the Twitter campaigns, because now um, in South Africa there, are, there is very active uh, Twitter campaign specifically around energy um, way you try to promote the narrative that nuclear is good, nuclear brings transformation to South Africa and will benefit um, poor people in South Africa. So we'll, because um, uh, South Africa has uh, such a, a strong diversity between uh, rich and uh, poor uh, people. So this narrative is easily used uh, to say that nuclear energy is the only energy technology that will bring transformation to South Africa, comparing to renewable energy that will benefit Western countries. Yeah, it's it's been kind of a consistent feature of Russian social media disinformation that, uh, I mean, they play both sides of any divisive topic, whether it's based on race or class, um, income, poverty lines, they, they basically find a divisive topic um, and then play both sides of the field. That happened in the 2016 elections in the US. 
where they were playing left, you know, the liberal uh, individuals, they were doing the same thing on the conservative side. They used divisive topics such as gun control, um, uh, the right to have an abortion, any topic that's got any kind of way to to divide a population, they kind of target that. And, um, I mean, that was what was seen earlier this year in um, the uh, troll farms that I know CNN did quite a, an, an expansive reporting on it where they actually went into Ghana and they found the house where this troll farm was being operated from. And this was uh, several Ghanaians, all of them well-meaning normal citizens. Uh, they were being handled, if you want to call it that, by uh, an individual with links back to Russia. And they were basically posting as you know, U.S. Um, African-Americans you know, pushing things about police violence, uh, you know, using these societal wedges to try and, and divide topics. So that same kind of playbook was uh, can be seen or hints of that can be seen in the way that, for example, this organization that I spoke of earlier, the SAEF, um, which is short for the South African Energy Forum, um, the way they approach these topics, they use you know, poverty and racial lines as a way to say, well, nuclear is the only option that will benefit black South Africans. And they will say that, yeah, the renewable energy is something that's only going to be, be benefiting white Westerners and so on. So a lot of that kind of takes from the same playbook. The way that they approach it is, is very similar. There's, um, even though there's no, obviously from our research, we can't say, well, here are the receipts, here are the, you know, the transactions that definitely prove it's, it's, you know, instructions are coming from Russia. But if you uh, the, if you look at their behavior and the way that they operate, the things that they do, the way that it and other organizations linked to it are structured, you can see that same silhouette being sketched, um, as, as Zinka mentioned, and as, a, as we've seen in other Russian-linked disinformation operations. So you have focused most of your discussion on, in your research, on Russian disinformation. We've talked about China and their propaganda. Again, it's a, it's a fine line between state propaganda and active disinformation. You know, that's subject to interpretation to some extent. Um, are you finding that our other countries, is the U.S., Germany, France, I mean, are other countries also involved in this, or is it primarily the Russians and the Chinese who do this kind of propaganda and disinformation? Uh, John, let's go to you first, and then Zavinka, I'd like to get your take on it. Yeah, this, I mean, other countries are definitely playing as well. I think China and Russia get a lot of the attention, especially Russia because of the, you know, the going-ons in the 2016 elections. And just the way that the uh, kind of the U.S., Russia, and Europe relations tend to dominate the um, news cycles. Um, a lot of those northern hemisphere countries do get a lot of the media attention around these kind of topics. Well, uh, in the meantime, um, other entities we've, at the DFR lab, we've tracked disinformation operations running in Brazil. We found them in India. We found them in Iran. All of them kind of tailored to their unique situation. Um, some of the more interesting things we found is, um, you know, disinformation operations being orchestrated from uh, Egypt, for example, uh, targeting various other North African countries. So you've actually got that intra-African uh, kind of disinformation operations using PR agencies as proxies. So there's definitely a lot going on, you know, from various nation states and not necessarily just Russia, China and, um, you know, the usual suspects. 
Yeah, uh, so I think um, obviously uh, different countries are trying to promote uh, their uh, agenda, but um, everybody's trying to use uh, different uh, mechanisms and uh, uh, we can see that um, uh, Russia has a specific na- narrative uh, to uh, promote and uh, Africa plays uh, quite an important role, especially because of the uh, sanctions that the Western countries uh, apply to Russia, which limits and their uh, activities and uh, opportunities in uh, many other countries. But um, I also wanted to um, change a little bit of a conversation to the uh, topic of resilience, because we should understand that disinformation campaigns, this is a not new event that's been going on for over 100 years. Different countries were promoting, and uh, we do have examples of uh, US-based or Um, European-based campaigns to promote certain narratives. At the same time, in the interest of African countries is to build resilience to those situations that uh, African countries can promote their own agenda and not to be swayed by uh, different countries. And um, maybe also another point that depending whether a country is democratic or uh, more authoritarian, the disinformation would play a different uh, role because uh, we also can observe that in African countries, um, similar to other countries around the world, the internet uh, can be controlled. And uh, if we talk about uh, social media disinformation campaigns, if it's controlled by the government, if internet can be shut down for a certain period of time, um, then uh, it's obviously going to affect how disinformation uh, is presented in um, uh, each of those countries. Jean, so we've seen raising, rising kind of awareness and and dismay and panic about about the role of this of of disinformation campaigns in many different countries. Um, it's 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 getting a lot of attention in the U.S. around the, the coming election, but you know there's a lot of discussion around this in in Africa too. Um, but we're not really seeing a lot of discussion about what might counter it. Um, do you have any idea of like what like what is the kind of weaknesses of these campaigns? Like how how can they be uh you know be kind of disarmed is there any way uh, that that's a that's kind of the the, the holy grail of this information is research is how do you stop it how do you inoculate the population against it and there's various schools of thought the on the one hand um proponents are saying that you need to put more good information out there you know kind of drown out the bad the disinformation and the misinformation with good, proper information. Um, Others were saying, well, you need to actively investigate, find these people, and then expose them. Um, I mean, personally, I feel that a mix between these two are probably best. Uh, We are staying in or living in an era where our attention is being vied for for various different, um, you know, resources. So, you know, just putting more information out there kind of in, introduces a, almost an apathy in in people. So you tend to go for the easiest narrative, the one that's the most, um, you know, easy to understand and easy to digest. And unfortunately, that's usually the disinformation narratives. At the same time, it takes a lot of resources to debunk and investigate these uh, disinformation campaigns. It's, there's a lot of data involved. There's research involved. Uh, findings need to be proofed and checked and double checked and triple checked uh, before you can make um, findings. And even then, it's it's always a uh, it's difficult to, to then attribute a specific campaign to one particular entity or even a nation state. 
So a combination of that is probably the best way. I think people are a lot more aware than they were two or three years ago. Um, in South Africa, we had our own little run-in with the, the so-called Gupta bots, which was a disinformation campaign orchestrated on the same Gupta family that was uh, responsible for the state capture. And um, I can definitely see from what I've seen following that, people are a lot more aware that there are these fake social media accounts. There are entities larger than, you know, the one or two people that follow you on Facebook or Twitter that are trying to use those systems to influence opinions and influence behaviors. Tavinka, very last question to you. John gave us some ideas on how to prepare for this. What would be your advice as somebody who's looking into this for the average media consumer in Africa or elsewhere to to arm themselves and defend themselves against this kind of misinformation? If you look at uh, what disinformation is trying to do, they are promoting polarization. So obviously those countries where equality is higher uh, are more um, are stronger and more resilient to disinformation. So um, as a citizens, we should promote more accountability from the government to reduce those polarization, to reduce the corruption, and this would result into a stronger, uh, more resilient um, country to disinformation. Also to improve critical thinking, and um, um, as Jean uh, has mentioned, by just putting um, uh, true information does not convince um, consumers of um, uh, disinformation and uh, propaganda. You uh, almost have to explain how the information was manipulated and uh, how it's benefiting specific narratives. But even by uh, explaining uh, all the connections, it's still really difficult to uh, prevent from something like that uh, happening uh, again. So by promoting critical thinking and being a exposing our internal biases, we can uh, improve our um, resilience to disinformation. Another important factor is media and independence of media and how the society, how much the society trusts to media. And uh, um, here, if, um, if countries have media that not really independent, uh, or that are promoting very specific uh, narratives, it creates problems of distrust. And then um, even if you have certain media that remain independent, the distrust uh, will cover all different um, um, media resources. So population will not be trusting a journalist. So supporting independence of media is um, another important um, uh, factor. And I think um, uh, also um, what we can see that the social media platforms uh, are uh, increasing uh, regulation uh, by themselves. There are more and more support uh, to independent uh, media, uh, social media monitoring and fact-checking organization. In South Africa, uh, there are uh, there is uh, a platform uh, Real Four One One where anybody can uh, log a complaint about disinformation and independent expert will uh, provide the um, view uh, whether the information is true or false. Uh, similar Africa Check and other organizations that is actively promoting, uh, re resisting misinformation and detecting um, uh, false narratives. And we also want to give a shout out to the team at AFP Fact Check in Nigeria, 
who also does something very similar to debunk uh, fake news, misleading news, and incomplete news. Uh, Tzavinka Kachur is a researcher at the Center for Complex Systems and Transitions at Stellenbosch University in beautiful Cape Town, South Africa. Uh, John LaRue is a research associate with the Digital Forensic Lab Research Lab, a department within the Atlantic Council think tank in Washington. He, too, is also in Cape Town. Thank you both for sharing that your research with us, and we're really looking forward to when your paper comes out. We'd love to have you come back to talk about your findings. And uh, again, thank you for your time today. Thanks for the invitation. Thanks, Eric. Kobus, I am thoroughly depressed after listening to what they said because there really is no way for the average person to defend themselves against this. I mean, you just, it's so much information. How do you know where one thing comes from or one thing isn't? Again, we talked about in the Chinese context, they're using lots of different ways to disseminate their news and information. Again, they would take issue with the concept of dis- disinformation. From what we know from the reporting, they do engage in active disinformation campaigns in the United States, in Australia, and other kind of larger kind of core strategic interests. We haven't seen evidence of that in Africa. What they are doing in Africa is probably more along the lines of propaganda. But propaganda and disinformation do kind of fall into a very gray, murky area. And then the other part of this that we didn't talk about is just terrible journalism and bad reporting. Uh, This came up last week quite a bit when the United States Department of Defense uh, a couple weeks ago issued their annual report on Chinese military activities around the world, okay? And in that, there was one line that said, uh, China has likely considered military bases, and they listed 12 countries, including Namibia and Kenya. Holy cow. That then sparked the Kenyan media, and we're talking most major news outlets in Kenya, went and said, China is considering having a base in Kenya. That then escalated to China is looking to have a base in Kenya, China's planning, and it just went up all the way up to China's going to open a U.S. base, a military base in Kenya. (laughs) And now this started in Namibia as well, something to that effect. And that's just bad journalism, because there was no, no reference in that report. And they quote, they sourced back to the Pentagon report as their attribution for this. And it never said that in the in the report. And my point here is that mix bad journalism in with disinformation, with social media, and you get a toxic brew that is just really, really hard to figure out what's what. Yeah, it's 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 really difficult. It's it's, it's very difficult to disentangle. Um, and you know, one of the, one of the problems um, that that compounds this is that it isn't really possible to locate disinformation campaigns in one particular place. It's, it, it is obviously very fashionable to blame Russia and China for for good reasons, and in many cases. But for example, the you know the the state captured disinformation that Zvinka mentioned, um, which were frequently kind of rushed. Russia-focused messaging was disseminated in South Africa by Bell Pottinger, a British public relations firm. Um, so, you know, kind of there's no... This is in the way that in, the, in previous conversations we've... Um, we focused on surveillance, um, Chinese surveillance in Africa, and then we had to like continually say yes, and also Italian and British and American firms. Um, and this is the same situation, you know, kind of like this, this information is a kind of a free for all, I think, at the moment. And and um, and and I think just simply blaming one one country for it, no matter how problematic they are, is this kind of misreading the situation. 
And so part of the cure is good journalism. And that's what motivates us in some ways is to be able to, to do this kind of work that we're doing on the website and the podcast and whatnot, and to be a source of good information. Again, uh, Africa Check is another amazing resource. AFP Fact Checked is great. The Daily Maverick, uh, Daily Nation, Premium Times in Nigeria. These are all amazing African media outlets, and I think supporting them is going to be a very, very important and you know antidote to some of this. The problem is, Cobus, though, is that that sounds great. We all want to have great, high-quality media, but they're getting killed in the advertising market. And media brands around the world, great journalism brands around the world, especially in Africa, are under enormous financial pressure in light of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic and the fact that advertising has just fallen off a cliff, plus the fact that Facebook and Google is gobbling up a vast majority of advertising revenue. That also presents a challenge in challenging and in really questioning a lot of the fake news and pushing people away from relying on unknown, unsourced Twitter and Facebook feeds for information rather than outlets like Daily Maverick and others that really do provide wonderful, good, high-quality journalism. So the the future, unfortunately, does not look very promising in this space. Well, this is one of the reasons why we started initiatives like like our daily newsletter, you know, which is, uh, you know, it's, it's essentially taking a deep niche, like China-Africa issues, and really covering it, you know, kind of in a lot of detail, trying to, to maximize all of the, the different kind of voices one features. But, you know, that's a very dedicated effort, as we know. Um, and... Uh, you know, kind of, and and it's also only for a relatively kind of niche audience, particularly an audience that's willing to pay for it, which is which is a tall order for many people in Africa. Um, so you know, because so that also, it's not really a, a kind of a cure all. No, it's not going to be a cure all. Let's hope that foundations come through and other alternative ways of financing journalism do come through, because that to me, again, it's something near and dear to my heart as a journalist for 30 years, that we continue to invest in good quality storytelling that is informed and well-balanced, but it is it is very difficult right now. And as somebody who used to run media networks in in in, in both the US, Europe, and in Asia, I, I've been out on the sales calls, and people will tell you right up to your face, I'm not going to put money into your media brand because I put it all into Facebook and Google. And there you go. And so you then, that re results in you having to lay off journalists and not invest in the kind of reporting that challenges this kind of misinformation. So as Kobus said, we spend all day putting this together. So if you are interested in the China-Africa space in particular, it's super easy to get started with us. Just $3 for three months will get you our daily email newsletter. It also gives you access to all the information on our website, plus uh, our China-Africa Experts Network, which is now at about 120, 130 folks, mostly young African and Chinese experts, that, that if you are doing research or you are a think tank analyst or a journalist and you want to diversify your sourcing to get people who are from underrepresented communities, this is a great resource for you to do that. The subscription, again, just $3 for three months, and then it's only $7 for students after that or teachers uh, every month or $15 a month for everybody else. Go to chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. Give us a try. And again, if you have any questions, you can email us directly, eric at chinaafricaproject.com or Cobus at ChinaAfricaProject.com. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. Cobus and I are back every week with a new episode, most weeks, two episodes, and we'll be back again next week with, a, with another show. Until then, thank you so much for listening. For Cobus Van Staten, I'm Eric Olander. Thanks a lot. The discussion continues online. 
head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Gwobas at Stadinsky or Eric at eOlander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.